0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, I'm Dr. Tom Newman. I'm a professor emeritus of epidemiology and biostatistics and pediatrics at UCSF and I'm happy to be giving this UCSF mini medical school presentation. As I think um, all of you know, we live in uh, kind of scary times, but I think this is how a lot of us feel. This is actually a, a slide from one of my climate change lectures, but it does, I think, capture the moment. This is uh, uh, a French meteorologist noticed that the heat map around Paris uh, looked like uh, Edvard Munch's painting The Scream. And um, with COVID and climate change, it, it, it is a scary time. And I show this because actually the way this talk started is uh, I was teaching a class to uh, students in UCSF and uh, an inquiry elective on climate change. I've been teaching since 2016 and that's where I gave the first version of this talk. And in that talk, I quoted the UCSF Academic Senate Task Force on sustainability. We were talking about the footprint from healthcare And the task force said trying to reduce the carbon footprint from healthcare without examining what we do is like trying to reduce the carbon footprint from travel without examining what trips we take. And in fact, much of my career has focused on critically examining what we do and teaching others how to do that. And ideally identifying things that we can stop doing and only uh, and either keep health the same or actually make it better, and at the same time save money. And I show this slide. Uh, I give a lecture in our design and clinical research class um, about my very first research project, which was about um, identifying unnecessary laboratory tests. That was back around 1983, uh, when I was concerned about high U.S. healthcare costs. And you can see that, uh, in spite of my concern. U.S. continued to have the highest healthcare costs in the world by quite a wide margin, and they're still going up. It's now over $10,000 per person in the United States. And it turns out in the United States, we waste a lot of money in healthcare. This is from a paper uh, from 2012 by Berwick and Hall Hackbarth. So um, the numbers have all gotten bigger and they provided low, medium, and high estimates. And I'm just showing you the low estimates in billions of dollars uh, in money wasted in the US uh, on healthcare and why. And I'm gonna focus on this top number here uh, on overtreatment, that is doing things to people that do not benefit them or doing tests on them that do not benefit them. Now, um, the title of this talk, Safely Doing Less, I have to give credit to my uh, former mentee, Dr. Alan Schroeder, who's uh, now professor um, in hospital pediatrics at Stanford. And we wrote this paper together back in 2011, uh, but the title was, was his, Safely Doing Less, a missing component of the patient safety dialogue. And we, we were struck by the fact that when people talk about patient safety, they often talk about things that somebody failed to do they missed a cue here or they didn't follow up on a lab test there or something like that. But often bad things happen as a result of having done too much. And Alan has some really cute slides. Um, he sort of shows uh, how children's hospitals like to present themselves. That was, that was uh, Packard, this is Seattle Children's, uh, Children's Hospital of Orange County. UCSF, uh, Benioff and Children, uh, Hospitals and Children's Oakland. Uh, and then he shows the billboard that he would want to show that you're never going to see, Dr. Schroeder and Packard Children's Hospital, Stanford, doing less for you today. And uh, there's pictures there. This is a, a baby who's getting a nebulizer treatment for bronchiolitis, which we know from randomized trials do not work. And this is a child getting a CT scan for a minor head injury. Um, But as you probably know, when hospitals are presenting themselves to the world, they don't like to advertise that we're the ones who will not do stuff to you that you don't need. Rather, we have all the latest and greatest. So um, my my first take-home message is, if you look for stuff, you will find it. And that is not always a good thing. And I'll give you two examples, one that starts back with Dr. Alan Schroeder when he was a fellow on oxygen saturation monitoring. And then I can spend quite a bit of time on cancer screening because that's sort of the the poster child for looking for stuff, finding it, and then maybe not benefiting the patient. Now, um, back when he was a fellow, Alan and I and uh, Andrew Marmer and Bob Pantel did this very low tech study um, so a little background, bronchiolitis is uh, one of the most common reasons why uh, babies under one are uh, hospitalized. It's an infection in the small airways, usually caused by a virus, most often a virus called RSV, and it gives the babies trouble breathing, sort of like if they had asthma. Um, and um, they need to stay in the hospital a while, get oxygen. Most Almost everybody recovers, but a few need to go to intensive care. and. Um, I trained before oxygen saturation monitors were widely available and and when we were trying to decide whether a baby with bronchiolitis could go home we'd mostly look and see whether the baby could could uh, nurse or bottle feed without getting out of breath babies if they're if they have bad lung disease um, and they need oxygen um, they'll they'll get out of breath from eating just as you or I would get out of breath if we were walking upstairs or exercising. So we see if on room air, can this baby eat okay? And if they could, then look like they're ready to go home. But with oxygen saturation monitors, what we found is that often the baby seemed ready to go home, except, oh, they were having what they call desats. They were having periods where their oxygen saturation went down Um, And so people would say, oh, we better put them back on oxygen. Oh, we better watch them for another couple days and make sure these DSATs go away. And in this very low-budget study, just looking at paper charts, we found that uh, in 16 of 62 patients, the length of stay was prolonged because of concern about these low oxygen saturations when, based on what else was in the chart, it looked like the baby was ready to go home. Well, this was 2004. I thought of Alan recently because... Just uh, April twenty first in twenty twenty, there was this paper in JAMA, and this is looking at the prevalence of continuous pulse oximetry monitoring in hospitalized children with bronchiolitis not requiring uh, supplemental oxygen. So these are babies breathing room air, and this was just comparing the the numbers are the numbers are tiny, but these are just different children's hospitals, and looking at what percent of the babies who were off oxygen. Um, were um, being monitored with continuous pulse oximetry. And you see this very wide variation here um, from almost none to close than 100%. And this is a practice that does hasn't ever been shown to be beneficial, does tend to increase length of stay. And I wanted to highlight it because of the title of the editorial that accompanied it. Uh, That editorial was called Overuse of Continuous Pulse Oximetry for Bronchiolitis, The Need for De-Implementation Science. And maybe some of you have heard that there's sort of a move to study implementation science. Implementation science is, you know, we have interventions that we know work, um, and more people should be getting those interventions, Um, and yet for some reason they don't. So we try to study why and try to make those interventions more widely available. Well, de-implementation science is interventions that we know don't work but still are widely used. And how can we get people to stop using them? In the case of pulse oximetry, part of the problem is people feel like it's giving them useful information because they see the oxygen drop and they think, oh, this must be important. Well, this isn't just relevant for people who work in uh, hospitals and take care of children with bronchiolitis because now um there are oxygen monitors being marketed and sold for home use so that you can monitor your newborn baby's oxygen levels and heart rate and get a you know readout on your uh, cell phone and this is addressing the you know, when when our son was first born sometimes At night, my wife would sort of nudge me and say, go check on him, go make sure he's breathing. Um, And I think this is probably very common, especially for the first baby. Um, Well, now you don't have to do that. You can just take out your phone and see what your baby's oxygen saturation is. And I first heard about this technology from families. I I attended the newborn nursery, and one of the mothers asked, "You know, which of these uh, baby monitors do you recommend? And I was kind of caught by surprise, but she said that she started seeing advertisements of them popping up when she was uh, using Google uh, soon after she realized that she was pregnant. And and you can imagine the marketing for something like this. I mean, many families are afraid that their baby's going to stop breathing. You know, the possibility of sudden infant death is just terrifying. And here's a way to address that is you could have your baby on a monitor. So... Um, these monitors have been studied, and here's, a, I'm just showing you the left half of a graph I'm going to show you. This is the owlet, and the numbers are kind of small, but let me just orient you to this graph. So this is a study comparing the oxygen saturation as measured by the owlet, that's on the y-axis, with the oxygen saturation as measured by an FDA-approved hospital-grade Uh, oxygen saturation model uh, that is used in the hospital. And so up here in the upper right corner, these are the true negatives, meaning these are the babies that didn't have a low oxygen saturation, they had a high oxygen saturation by both the owlet and the the hospital uh, sat monitor. Okay, so these are true negatives these are true positives. These are babies who had a low oxygen on both. And then there's not that many false negatives, but there are a few false negatives. This is when the hospital monitor was low and the, the outlet was falsely high, so it was reassuring. And then down here, there's a few false positives. So the outlet looks pretty good. The other thing you see is there's all kinds of babies, all kinds of times when the oxygen gets low. But on the other hand, these are babies who are in the hospital. The the design for this was babies who were in the hospital getting oxygen saturation monitors. And what they did was put one uh, monitor on each foot so they could compare. This, on the other hand, is the baby Vita. That was the other oxygen monitor I showed you. And this one is remarkable because, well, here's the good news. No false positives meaning there, there, there weren't any times when the baby Vita said the oxygen was um, okay and it was really low. Here's the bad news. No true positives. In other words, even when the oxygen was low, according to the uh, all these ones, the oxygen was low according to the hospital-level baby monitor, the baby Vita was tripping along, saying everything is fine. So this would probably be a good monitor to have if you just want to be reassured and it would probably be very reassuring. Um, Although I notice it's no longer for sale on Amazon. I'm not sure why, but it may be, um, you know, if you were to strap it to a table leg and continue to see that the saturation was okay, that it might then become somewhat less reassuring when it's uh, reading okay on your baby. So at first thought you think, Oh, this is the worst monitor because you have all of these false negatives, all these ones where the true oxygen saturation was low and it was reading okay. Um, But the trouble is maybe in fact these were false positives because these were low oxygen saturations that you maybe didn't even want to know about and would not have caused any problem even if you didn't uh, measure them. And that would at least be true probably in outpatients and in well babies. And in fact, this has been studied. This is a paper looking at oxygen saturation in healthy uh, term newborns. And they did overnight pulse oximetry recordings in 60 healthy infants, not selected because anyone had any concerns about their, uh, their breathing. And they found episodes of desaturation, meaning uh, saturation of less than 80%, and 80% is low. This, this would normally be very worrisome, uh, lasting greater than four seconds, They were found in 35% of the recordings in week one and 60% of the recordings in weeks two to four. And in fact, in week two, the median, that's the 50th percentile number of desaturations per 12-hour recording, was four with a range from zero to 165. These are in normal babies. So the bottom line here is normal babies desat. And that means that if you put a sat monitor on them, most likely you will have alarms. And in fact, almost all of them will be false alarms. So um, that's what I just said. If you look for DSATs, you will find them in inpatients, this often prolongs hospital stays. In outpatients, clinically important DSATs in babies who are acting well and in SIDS are very rare. And so almost all of the alarms will be false alarms, even if the SAT really was low. But um, the anxiety, and hence the market for these products, is very real because I think people can imagine, and I don't, you know, I have, to, I have to admit that the marketing for these has not been as heavy-handed as I might have feared. It doesn't say, if you don't buy our product and your baby dies of SIDS, think how bad you're going to feel. But, but in fact, I think that is sort of at work. Uh, that anxiety is, is dry, driving things. Well, um, speaking of anxiety and terrifying things like SIDS, there's not much that's more terrifying than uh, cancer, and malignant melanoma is a particularly bad cancer. Um, This is an advertisement that I found through this article that was um, in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, eight years ago by Steve Woleshen and colleagues called Cancer Screening Campaigns Getting Past Uninformative Persuasion. And it says... My brother accidentally killed himself. He died of skin cancer. And I am the first to agree that you should limit your sun exposure, although it's probably better to stay out of the sun um, than to uh, be in the sun a whole lot with sunscreen. But in any case, so here's a here's kind of cancer that doesn't require, you know, any kind of expensive screening test to diagnose. You can, you know, look at the skin and see if you have a funny-looking mole. And if you do, you go to the dermatologist, and if the dermatologist thinks it's funny-looking, um, he or she will probably do an excisional biopsy and send it to the pathologist and then tell you whether it's cancer. And most people assume that the pathologist will just look and they'll be able to tell. Well, uh, this was a study that looked at interobserver agreement among pathologists for diagnosing malignant melanoma. And the design was eight expert dermatopathologists, that means they're pathologists that specialize in the skin, and they were in fact selected on the basis of their reputation and publication. So these are leading expert dermatopathologists, and each one selected five cases of melanomas or benign melanocytic nevi, that's sort of the main thing in the differential diagnosis, that's benign, uh, that shared histologic features with melanoma. And they had to be classic cases that could be published as examples, and they selected 37 cases and then had all eight pathologists look at them. And this is what the agreement looks like when there's perfect agreement. So these are specimen numbers here. These are the 13 specimen numbers for which there was perfect agreement. These are the pathologists, A through H. And you can see for specimen three, they all agreed it was benign. Four and five, they all agreed it was malignant, and so on. So this is what it should look like. But this was only the case for 13 of the um, 37 that, um, that they looked at. What about the 24 cases where there was disagreement? Well, now there's a new category, which is can't tell. And of course, you may say, well, maybe they just picked out hard ones. If they picked out, but if they picked out hard ones or ones where you shouldn't be able to tell, then they should have agreed that I can't tell. I mean, they could have agreed on that. And I want to call your attention to pathologists G and H in particular. So G, almost all of them thought that the slide was that the um, lesion was benign, whereas H thought almost all of them were either malignant or can 't tell. So if you go to the dermatologist and get a biopsy, what happens to you next depends enormously on who happens to review that pathology let 's move on to uh, lung cancer, and for lung cancer, I want to go back to a an old study, but a really classic one. Uh, for which there's, there's now long term follow up. This was called the Mayo Lung Project because it was done by uh, investigators at the Mayo Clinic. And it was a randomized trial of lung cancer screening. That means people were randomly assigned to either get screened or not screened. It enrolled uh, um, 92, 11 male smokers between 71 and 76. And they were randomized to the intervention group, got a chest x ray, and Sputum cytology, that means they, you cough and, and someone looks under the microscope at the sputum to see if it looks like it has cancer cells. Um, every, so three times a year, every four months for six years. And 75% compliance I means 75% of the group actually did that, you know, three times a year. And the usual care group got the same test at trial entry and then a recommendation to receive them annually, but they weren't pushed real hard because, of course, we're trying to compare these two. So what happened? Um, Well, this is the extended follow-up. This shows follow-up 25 years out, okay? And among those with lung cancer, those in the, the people in the intervention group had more cancers that were diagnosed at an early stage and therefore could be resected and they had better survival. So you can look even as you go out 20 years here I mean, lung cancer is still a horrible, horrible disease, but um, you have 30% long-term survival in the intervention group and more like 10%, 10 or 15% in usual care. So that makes it look like the intervention was beneficial. And the people in this intervention group, the story that they're all telling their families is, oh, thank goodness for the Mayo Clinic lung doctors, they saved my life. I got lucky enough to be in the intervention group. My cancer was diagnosed at an early stage. It was resected. Oh, I am so lucky. Thank you, Mayo Clinic doctors. Um, But there's only one problem with this picture, which is this is only looking at the people who were diagnosed with lung cancer, and guess what? There were a whole lot more of them in the intervention group, 206 versus 160. So this is a good example of how not to analyze a randomized trial, because when you analyze a randomized trial, you compare the whole group randomized to screening to the whole group randomized to control. And when you do that, actually there were more lung cancer deaths, 337 versus 303, in the group assigned intervention. Okay, so what happened? Well, what happened was there was an increase in the total number of cancers diagnosed. There was an excess of tumors diagnosed at an early stage, but there was no decrease in late stage tumors. And if what we were doing is just diagnosing a tumor earlier that would have progressed if we hadn't diagnosed it, then we'd expect that if we diagnose more tumors at an early stage, there should be fewer tumors diagnosed at a late stage and that isn't what happened and so the explanation for this is what we call overdiagnosis. some of the so-called cancers diagnosed in the screen group never would have caused a problem and maybe they're cancers that if some other pathologist had looked at the slides like in the melanoma example i should show you maybe the other um doctor would have not even said they were cancer might have said they were benign So this over-diagnosis thing is is definitely a problem, and it's a problem even with lung cancer, which is the cancer where I think people would least suspect it. It's actually well-known in prostate cancer and in breast cancer and in thyroid cancer. So here's another ad from that same um, paper I mentioned before. Uh, It says Rachel Kramer, 14, the day before she was diagnosed with cancer. you know, when it says it would never happen to me, I've got uh, I've got bigger things to worry about like homework friends and all the cute upperclassmen. Well, in fact, 14-year-olds really shouldn't be worried about thyroid cancer. The the incidence is uh, a thousand times lower about in uh, 14-year-olds than in older people. Um, it's interesting, when, when I uh, did a little more research, I, I found this advertisement through the New England Journal of Medicine article and then... I searched the web, and here's where else I found it, at uh, the Lombardi Law Firm. Um, And this is actually the, the URL, malpractice is a very personal type of claim. So this is the concern, and you can imagine that because of this narrative, this story of diagnosing cancer early, saving lives... You have to add, admire the pathologist that I sh- uh, in the malignant melanoma slide, who was diagnosing all those ones as benign, because for the pathologist they have way more to lose if they uh, if their diagnosis is falsely negative. If they say it's benign, then it's cancer. If they say it's cancer and it's not, what's going to happen? The person will get treated for cancer, they'll do really well. People will be grateful. So there haven't been randomized trials of thyroid cancer screening, um, but but there's something called an epidemiologic signature that gives a strong hint of overdiagnosis, and this is uh, our friend Gil Welch again. Um, he was I forgot to tell you in the that the the melanoma pathologist uh, interrater reliability. I got that example from his book. Should I be tested for cancer? Maybe not, and here's why. Um, Anyway, Gil Welch and William Black, these are the two big leaders in the overdiagnosis area, just uh, last October published this paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, Epidemiologic Signatures in Cancer. And they gave just example, without doing any kind of fancy thing, just looking at public health, population-wide statistics, you can get clues about what's going on. And so this is the epidemiologic... Uh, signature for cancers for which treatment is improving. So Hodgkin's lymphoma and chronic mild leukemia, the incidence has been pretty stable. Okay. But the mortality has been going down. So this is per 100,000. This is relative to 1975. We'll focus on this top, these top panels. So that, that's the epidemiologic signature for cancers with improving treatment. This is the epidemiologic um, signature for real changes in incidence. This is lung cancer in men, lung cancer in women. And you can see it was going up in men until about 1990. And then with declines in smoking, the incidence started going down. And as it did, the mortality went down because these were real cancers and they were killing people. And when people got fewer of them, um, fewer people died of it. In women, because of smoking, incidents continued to increase and didn't peak till later, maybe 2006 or 7 and is more slowly going down and the mortality went down with it. Okay? But now look at the epidemiologic signature for overdiagnosis and the clue there is the incidence is increasing dramatically but mortality is staying just the same. And this is thyroid cancer has had an almost five-fold increase in incidence. Kidney cancer, a doubling of incidence. Melanoma, quadrupling of incidence. Melanoma mortality, stable. So um, to learn more about these, I recommend these books uh, by Gil Welch. I mentioned this one, Should I Be Tested for Cancer? Overdiagnosed, Less Medicine, More Health. And these are very... Readable. This one actually is is pretty funny because he's he's a witty guy. A lot of stories that are example of people who were well that the uh, health system made sick by doing stuff to them that uh, they didn't need. So that's the end of uh, the the first uh, take home message. If you look for stuff, you will find it, and that may not be good for the patient. And I and I mentioned already in that the power of stories, like the story people can tell a story of either you know, my cancer was diagnosed too late and I wish it had been diagnosed early or I'm so lucky my cancer was diagnosed early and I'm still alive because the uh, wonderful doctors have saved me. So, um, but this is not just true for screening. The compelling stories are not enough and we need to quantify or you know, do our best to estimate risks and benefits of the intervention. And I'm gonna show you three examples from my own research one is uh, infant safety seats on airplanes, uh, childhood cholesterol screening, and early-onset sepsis. Uh, that's uh, infections in newborn babies. So we'll start with infant safety seats on airplanes. And I became interested in this um, because I have sort of been on a mission to try to get the American Academy of Pediatrics to be more evidence-based and to have their guidelines uh, um, be more evidence-based. And when they came out with this one, I was skeptical. I wanted to read more about it. So it says, uh, the AAP, that's the American Academy of Pediatrics, calls for an end to lap travel for children on planes. Um, and actually, I, I wrote a letter to the editor about it, which they declined to publish. And then I was on sabbatical on some extra time, so I looked into it further. So here's the background. Uh, Children under two can ride on a parent's lap uh, with no ticket when they uh, take an airplane. On July 19th, 1989, United Airlines Flight 232 crashed uh, outside of Sioux City, Iowa, and an unrestrained infant, uh, Eric Sow, died. Uh, That's a picture of uh, Colonel Dennis Nielsen, who was saving a child, and that served as the inspiration for a statue that stands commemorating that crash uh, outside of Sioux City. So shortly thereafter, the United States uh, National Transportation Safety Board recommended universal restraint, meaning children would need to be in safety seats on airplane. Um, But the FAA, which is the ones that would need to require that, they kind of dragged their feet. Uh, Nothing happened. And then four years later, another lap child died uh, In 19, five years later in 1994. And once again, the NTSB urged, urged the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, to require infant restraint. And so the FAA agreed to study it and in 1995 um, provided their report uh, to Congress and they actually did a scientific analysis where they looked at the survivability of previous crashes to try to estimate the potential benefit because the sad fact is that usually when an airplane crashes there aren't any survivors and so it's assumed that having a baby in a safety seat would not have uh, led them to survive. Um, The other thing they did though that was interesting but controversial is that in their base case they did a bunch of analyses but the the one that they sort of started with was that they assumed that the extra cost for the infant's ticket would make about 20 percent of those families decide to drive rather than fly to their destination because the trip would become more expensive so with uh, After with those analyses, they estimated that over 10 years, the infant restraint would save a maximum of five, prevent a maximum of five infant deaths, but it would lead to an increase of about 82 motor vehicle deaths due to diversion from planes to cars. Um, Well, that report was rejected as flawed by the NTSB and Congress. And here's some uh, congressional testimony Um, this is from uh, Congressman Jim Lightfoot of Iowa, I think there's more than enough evidence that substantiates what we are trying to do. The question I think, Mr. Chairman, comes down to how many more children must die, how many more have to be hurt before we reach the threshold of the FAA's ghoulish cost-benefit ratio. So this idea of actually trying to estimate what will happen if you change the law and require safety seats and the possibility of it actually causing harm was perceived as ghoulish. And then um, here's another quote. Um, It says, The argument in support of the FAA's resistance to the NTSB is unreasonable on its face and ridiculous in its justification. It protects theoretical children driving in cars at the expense of real flesh and blood infants whose safety is unquestionably compromised when flown as a lap baby. Um, and that was uh, from a book by uh, Ralph Nader um, about air, airplane safety. And I just think it's interesting. You know, the babies who die in car crashes actually are <laughs> real babies. It's just that we can't identify them and show their pictures. As uh, David Bishai, uh, this is a quote from him, uh, he quoted Ralph Nader in his editorial that accompanied our paper. Um, they really die, but we, their their images won't haunt the uh, the people who um, uh, require who, who led to them dying because they required uh, babies to have a ticket and a, an infant safety seat. So um, I decided to look at this with some colleagues to see if um, I could get away from this rejection of the assumption of twenty percent. Switching from driving from flying to driving, and this is a paper uh, published in two thousand three. Um, our estimate of the benefit was we were a little bit more generous, but the benefit is a pretty hard number because planes don't crash very often, and when they do, there's usually no survivors. so we said maybe six deaths in ten years would be the benefit. but for the risks, we didn't assume twenty percent would switch to cars and more and also importantly, we didn't assume that the people driving in those cars would have the average risk of death because we thought they would... The the people who have the highest risk of death per vehicle mile traveled are teenagers and the elderly. And we thought people with young infants probably wouldn't be in either of those groups or people who are drunk. And we assumed that they wouldn't be drinking. So we modeled what percent could switch to cars before the net deaths increased. And... Uh, our results are shown on this slide. So relative risk of auto deaths for families. So the FAA assumed one, meaning it was just average risk of death per 100 million vehicle miles traveled. Um, our base case, which assumed no drunk driving, drivers in their 20s and 30s, and, and also that most of the driving would be on interstate highways, which are much safer per vehicle mile traveled. So we thought the risk of death would only be about 0.36 times the average but even with that, if more than about four percent chose to drive rather than fly, then the net effect would be um, an increase in deaths. And this is how many additional deaths there would be, depending on, you know, whether more chose to drive or their relative risk of uh, death per hundred million miles traveled was was higher. So. um are the net increase in debt depending on assumptions was somewhere between 0 and 30 versus 82 because we thought the uh, the miles would be safer but still no benefit and probably harm and then we said well just look at the cost even if there were zero diversion to car travel at about $200 per round trip ticket the cost per life saved would be about $1.3 billion. so this was one of the two examples uh, I used in in a paper that was published in the British Medical Journal called The Power of Stories Over Statistics. The other one I'm not gonna talk about, but it's actually been my, my main research area, which is uh, jaundice and newborn babies. And it just, it's the, the summary um, mentioned in that article is that in the case of um, infant airline safety, there's really good data that there would be very little benefit and very, very high cost per benefit. And it would probably cause net harm But the stories are powerful and I don't have time to share it with you, but a flight attendant who was on that United Airlines flight that crashed tells a really compelling story about um, telling Eric Sow's mother um, to put him on the floor in front of her and not letting her go back into the burning plane to try to get him. And it's really, really compelling. So um, in 2001, actually, the FAA knuckled under the pressure from the NTSB and issued a notice of proposed rulemaking that they would uh, require infant safety seats. But then in September 2001, uh, 9-11 happened, and the FAA got uh, busier doing other things. Uh, our paper was published in 2003. Um, in 2005, they actually made a formal decision not to change the rule, and which is why you can still... Uh, Ride an airplane uh, with your uh, baby on your lap if the baby is under two. That's it for infant safety on airplanes. Uh, my next talk, my next topic actually is about childhood cholesterol screening, and I have some nice advertisements for that one too. Uh, this one says she has her mother's eyes and her father's cholesterol, and and I've quit. Well, we hope that her mother doesn't have glaucoma. Um, you may wonder, so who is doing this nice advertisement? And the answer is, it's Kellogg's, the breakfast cereal manufacturer. And in fact, for a while, Kellogg's was advertising frosted flakes in pediatrics. That's the journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics. They were advertising frosted flakes as a health food because frosted flakes have no fat and no cholesterol. And but they're loaded with sugar. And this was an old. This is from 1993. But um, I just went to the supermarket uh, a couple months ago and took this picture of multi-grain Cheerios, uh, which are being advertised as, as preventing heart disease, even though they're about 20 percent sugar by weight. The question of lipid screening in children, as I'll show you in a minute, has been controversial for a long time. In 2012, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute um, issued new guidelines, and they were endorsed, to my great dismay, by the American Academy of Pediatrics. And this is their full report. You can Google it. Of course, uh, people who make cholesterol testing equipment are very eager to have you read that uh, report. Um, this is uh, I was from a, a link that I was uh, emailed. Then you can go to Abbott Labs, you can download the NIH guidelines for pediatric lipid testing, um, and you can uh, send away and get one of their machines to measure blood cholesterol levels and charge the patient money for it. So um, let's look at these guidelines. Um, They recommend universal lipid screening at ages nine to 11. Um, That's all children, and they call it a strong recommendation. And similarly, they recommend fasting lipid panels, believe it or not, beginning at age two for about 40% of children. And once again, this is a strong recommendation. Um, If your cholesterol is high, which it is according to them in about 20, 25% of children, they recommend treating with a low fat, low cholesterol diet, and then statins. And I just want to clarify what a strong, so, A strong recommendation. Clinicians should follow a strong recommendation unless a clear and compelling rationale for an alternative approach is present. Um, So I think there is such a rationale. And I've been saying this for years, and I'm reminded of uh, this guy, L. Frank Baum. Um, L. Frank Baum. wrote The Wizard, the Wonderful Wizard of Oz, and actually he wrote a whole bunch of Oz books, uh, 15 or 20 of them, I think. And um, the reason why I bring him up is that I was a big fan of the Oz books. I read all of them. There's 39 altogether uh, because someone else started writing them after he died. But every several Oz books, I know after the first six with the Emerald City of Oz, and then every few thereafter, he would write in the, in the preface, he'd say, oh, my dear children, my fans, I'm happy to present you with another Oz book, but this time for sure it's the last one. I want to do other stuff. I'm done. And then he'd get all these letters and he'd have to he'd end up and his other ventures didn't succeed and he'd end up writing more Oz books. Well, I started writing about childhood cholesterol screening in 1990. This was from JAMA, The Case Against Childhood Cholesterol Screening uh in 1995 uh in 2000 in 2005, if it's not worth doing, it's not worth doing well. In 2012, overly aggressive new guidelines, these are the NHLBI, uh, evidence of a broken process. In 2016, lipid screening in children, low-value care. So I've been at this for a long time. Um, and what's wrong with it? Well, um, the trouble is that it's these guidelines are based on a desire to prevent heart disease, but they don't use any kind of modeling of the risks and benefits of treatment. They don't estimate how many children would be treated. They don't estimate what will happen to their lipid levels if they are treated. They don't estimate how that will affect their future risk of heart disease. They say in one of the introductory chapters that those things are all things that it would be important to do, but they haven't done them yet. Um, The guidelines would call for over-treating girls because it turns out the guidelines don't differentiate by sex, but girls have higher cholesterol levels than boys even though women have way lower rates of heart disease. So if you follow these guidelines, more preschool girls, preschool girls than teenage boys qualify for treatment. And this is what happens when you don't quantify things, when you just do stuff that makes you feel good. Um, The guidelines call for young adults, 70 to 21, they would call for six times as many would be treated with statins compared with adult guidelines. And the adult guidelines themselves are very aggressive. And the recommended diet does not work. And if you put people on a diet and it doesn't work, then you might be tempted to treat them with statins. And statins cause type 2 diabetes. And before all of you who are on statins panic about that, um, we we know this. It's true from meta-analyses and randomized trials. But it's not a big effect in adults. So adults, the people being treated with statins, you might be, if you're at, 10% 10 10-year risk of a cardiovascular disease event. Um, If you start on a statins, you'll probably prevent about three events. You might cause one to two cases of diabetes, uh, but if you're preventing heart attacks and strokes, maybe it's worth it. But in children, as far as we know, we will cause the same amount of diabetes. There's only one study that actually suggests we might cause more But there just isn't heart disease to prevent over the next 10 years in children and adolescents. So it's all risk and no benefit. So how did this happen? Well, you might ask who wrote these guidelines? And here are the people who wrote it. This is a table with the financial disclosures of the expert panel chair and the members of the subgroup who drafted the lipids and lipoproteins chapter. And you can see they are loaded with conflicts of interest um, on the next slide, I have what their funders make, and uh, a lot of them, relevant, relevant, relevant medications. So a lot of their funders are the people who make the cholesterol-lowering drugs, but it's also people who make the relevant diagnostic instruments, including uh, this reflotron system, uh, which are the people who made this wonderful ad, are 250,000 lives worth one phone call, which is, you know, the answer is yes. But will one phone call save any lives? Probably not, but it will make you some money. And these are the type of advertisements that uh, you can see where where if you buy one of these analyzers for your office, um, you'll make more money. This is a leaflet, uh, cholesterol and kids, a family affair, just providing public service information from Bristol-Myers Squibb, who made the first cholesterol-lowering drug that was approved for children, uh, cholestyramine, which was awful. Nobody wanted to take it. This is from the American Medical Association's campaign against cholesterol. Uh, The AMA declared war on cholesterol, and these were the uh, corporate funders. So um, my conclusions about lipid screening in children is that the NHLBI AP 2012 guidelines are an embarrassment. They were a well-intentioned effort to diagnose familial hypercholesterolemia. That's an a, a inborn error of metabolism that leads to very high cholesterol levels, uh, but it led to vast overreach. But the good news is that there's new guidelines from 2018 that are much more sensible. So the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, and a bunch of other organizations uh, issued new guidelines in 2018. Um, Lipid screening in children, there's no longer a strong recommendation. And in fact, now they've retreated to saying it may be reasonable. And I am continuing to lobby the um, American Academy of Pediatrics to revise its guideline. And I am told they are considering it. Okay, take a breath. Uh, I think we have one more topic, which is uh, early onset sepsis in newborns. So those are bacteria, um, FYI, probably gram, gram-negative rods and cocci. Um, so you need to know a little bit of background about early onset sepsis or EOS. So the background, and this is my everyday bread and butter because I take care of newborns, is that newborns with bacterial infections can become very sick, very fast, and sometimes die, like within hours of being born if they have a bacterial infection. And it's really, really sad and horrible and awful, and everybody wants to prevent that. So for that reason, newborns with signs, or in some cases, even just risk factors, for infection are often admitted to the neonatal intensive care unit and uh, treated with IV antibiotics. And one of the most common causes of these infections is what's called group B strep or GBS. And um, beginning in the 1990s, mothers have been screened for GBS. Um, it a, 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 can either be in the urine or in a, a vaginal culture. And if they are carriers of group B strep, they can get treated with penicillin, and that reduces the risk of the baby getting GBS. And that's been successful. This is uh, uh, from the APCDC guidelines showing the declining incidence. Uh, again, it was already rare. You know, this is up at the top is two per thousand, and it's going down to about a half per thousand um, uh, live births. But, but this program has been a success. Um, But the guidelines for treating newborns at risk for GBS did not change as the incidence went down. And uh, the CDC and the American Academy of Pediatrics have recommended treating newborns with IV antibiotics if the mother was diagnosed with chorioamnionitis, which is the fancy medical word for uh, infection or inflammation of the membranes around the baby, the chorion and the amnion, and we'll just call it chorio, and that usually is diagnosed when the mother has a fever, but also maybe uterine tenderness or if the baby's heart, the fetus's heart rate is fast. Anyway, the trouble is the diagnosis of choreo is subjective. And my clinical experience was that at UCSF, we happened to have many obstetricians who had kind of a low threshold for diagnosing choreo. And sometimes they would diagnose it just based on. Um, a mother having a temperature of 37.8 degrees centigrade or 100 degrees Fahrenheit, which is not much of a fever, if it's a fever at all. And actually, we know that epidural uh, analgesia uh, for labor actually leads to the mother's temperature gradually going up. So, So that could be a false positive elevated temperature. So many babies treated unnecessarily. And we at UCSF didn't want to have to keep treating these babies with IV antibiotics, but felt a little exposed if the guidelines said we had to and we didn't. So with uh, colleagues from Northern California Kaiser Permanente led by Gabriel Escobar and Harvard led by Karen Puapolo and UC Santa Cruz, my alma mater, led by David Draper, the chair of applied statistics there, and uh, me here at UCSF, uh, we did a study to try to develop a quantitative risk prediction model for EOS to replace Corio. So, because, because just to say, okay, if mom has Choreo, you give antibiotics automatically, You know, eliminates a lot of the information and the subtlety in trying to estimate the baby's risk. So this was a retrospective study of 350 cases of early onset sepsis among 608,000 live births, mostly from Northern California Kaiser, thanks to their electronic record system made it way easier to do the study, although we still had to review paper charts for this. This was an older... That's, that, that We went all the way back to 1995 before the electronic record. And um, this is the... I won't go through all the details of how we created the model, but um, this is the relative importance of the predictors. And in fact, the mother's temperature was important, but rather than just dichotomizing it, fever or no fever, it turned out that how high the temperature was was really important because a little, you know, a temp of 38 didn't do much, but a temp of 39 or 40, or you know, 100, 200, uh, actually increased the risk a lot. Uh, gestational age, how long her membranes had been ruptured before deliveries, what antibiotics she got and when, and whether she was GBS, Group B strep positive. So we created a model, but the model is this sort of um, I won't say ugly because it's beautiful, but it's a complicated mathematical equation. But we created a website where you could enter the data and then it would tell you the baby's risk. And then um, I actually got a grant from the um, uh, UCSF Caring Wisely program. This is a program to try to help us uh, um, uh, save money and improve quality of care at UCSF. So, and the grant allowed us to implement this Kaiser sepsis risk calculator, as it's called, Uh, by the way, because it was mostly Kaiser patients and no patients from UCSF, um, into our electronic medical record, which is APEX. And this is a screenshot from that. And this is really nice because it means the doctor doesn't have to go looking in the mother's chart to figure out how long her membranes were ruptured, what antibiotics she got, what her highest temperature was. Uh, The electronic record knows who this baby's mother was, and it retrieves all that stuff and auto-populates this sheet, providing the estimate of the risk of infection per thousand, in this case, 0.46 per thousand. And then we also did studies to study, you know, if the baby is breathing faster, has a high temperature or something, how does that change the risk of infection? And then gave recommendations about what to do, whether to... Uh, treat with antibiotics, or no cultures, no antibiotics, and so on. Um, And um, again, at UCSF, we don't have enough patients to study uh, this, but Northern California Kaiser does, and this is uh, looking at the percent of babies getting um, at least one blood culture in the first 24 hours, and you can see a a really dramatic drop from somewhere around 15% to 5%, so about a two-thirds drop. And the number of babies getting blood cultures. And uh, a drop from about 5% to 2.5% or 3% in the number getting antibiotics. And this is not just, I mean, this is not just antibiotics, this is IV antibiotics in the neonatal intensive care unit. So it's really nice to be able to keep these babies with their mothers. And we looked to make sure that it was safe, that we were safely doing less. We found no increase in readmissions, no increase in bad outcomes from sepsis missed due to the calculator. And this, uh, the good news is that, in fact, the work we did at UCSF to get this into EPIC with um, our electronic record, um, other people around the country and around the world, in fact, thought this was such a good idea and the EPIC people liked it that it is now built into what EPIC calls their foundation build, meaning that when they sell um, or update the EPIC electronic medical record system, this calculator is now automatically a part of it, and uh, doctors all around the world who are using the EPIC electronic medical record system get to uh, use it to help estimate the baby's risk of infection without having to enter all the data themselves. And uh, happy to report that the latest guidelines from the um, American Academy of Pediatrics Committee on the Fetus and Newborns they at least now give the option (laughs) to use a risk calculator or serial examinations rather than automatic antibiotics uh, for maternal chorioamnionitis. So I'm counting that as a victory. So uh, just to conclude, there's a huge amount of overtreatment in the U.S. healthcare system. Just in my little experience taking care of newborns, I've seen plenty. Um, It wastes money, it harms patients, and it's bad for the environment, but it does generate a lot of income for some people, which makes it sometimes hard to change, and there's a growing need for this new thing, de-implementation science studies of how we can safely do less. And um, people are becoming aware of this. This is from Consumer Reports, um, and this is uh, an issue, whole issue of the British Medical Journal, dedicated to overtreatment. You can see as arming the healthy, alarming, harming the healthy. So I'm wondering if. Uh, Maybe our tang line. I was trying to think, redefining possible, yes, we do all kinds of wonderful things, new discovery, um, maybe it should be this. Um, doing our best in a, in a broken system or maybe uh, redefining sensible is, uh, is what we should be trying to redefine. And I'll stop there. Uh, if you want more information, I actually have a website and you can Google Newman Document Repository uh, and you can find it. So thanks very much.